Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Naomi Flynn is an Associate Professor of Primary English Education at the University of Reading, the Institute of Education, where she teaches on initial teacher education, master's in education and doctoral programs. Prior to working in higher education, Naomi was a teacher for 17 years, and this is where she developed her fascination with and admiration for children who have English as an additional language. Naomi's research focuses on how teachers' research-informed practice for multilingual learners can maximize these pupils' academic outcomes, and she's currently engaged in international collaboration with U.S. researchers in this field. Later this year, Naomi will spend three months in the city of Indianapolis, funded by a Fulbright Visiting Scholar Award, where she'll be evaluating an approach to teacher development for teaching EAL learners that she hopes to bring back to UK classrooms. Naomi is committed to making research accessible to practitioners, and to this end, she is the events chair and trustee of the charity, the National Association for Language Development in the Curriculum. She's also co-director of the public engagement body Bilingualism Matters at Reading. Despite having been an academic for 20 years now, Naomi says she's still happiest sitting in a school classroom observing children being taught expertly by great teachers. Welcome, Naomi. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Cathy. Very happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. Well, thank you so much for you know giving us such a chunk of your time. And we're really excited to put all of these questions to you about EAL learners. And uh, I know that we've been reading your research and what you do over the past few weeks. And it's just exciting to meet someone with such a passion for children, you know, who are EAL children. And just tell us a little bit about why this area excites you so much. Oh, well, it started with my teaching years. So I was 17 years in mostly inner city classrooms and came across many children who have English as an additional language, children from all sorts of different language and cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And I myself, unusually in the kind of language learning research community, I myself am actually monolingual, just a good old British English speaker. And the children just used to bowl me over. I just found them so very, very exciting. And once I came out of the classroom and into academia, it became an area of research that interested me, partly because just biographically, I moved out of London into the countryside and the university I was working at with knew I had this background in teaching inner city children. And it developed from there into a research interest in how teachers can best teach children with EAL. But it started with the children themselves. They were what really got me into it. So we've read that the national curriculum is still very much aimed at the monolingual learner, despite over 20% of British primary age children being multilingual. Now, as someone who's an expert in sort of teacher training and with a personal interest in multilingualism, how do you seek to support teachers with their teaching of English? 
Yeah, well, to respond to your first observation there, it is certainly the case that my own research and that of others has identified the national curriculum as a programme of study that doesn't really explicitly take account of EAL learners. Particularly problematic is that the assessment related to the national curriculum is very high stakes and obviously in English, and that doesn't necessarily capture the progress that EAL learners might have made, and it sets us up for a deficit picture of EAL. And this is one of the key drivers for my research with teachers. It's about helping them to see how much of what they do will benefit EAL learners, but also helping them to see why that's the case and what they can do more of. And my current research is about bringing a successful model of teaching for EAL from the US to the UK. This model of teaching, which is called the Enduring Principles of Learning, rests on the assumption that pupils with EAL need to be given more opportunities to speak and listen to support their literacy development. It requires that teachers plan activities that are intentionally talk-based and invested in what interests the students. And this way of teaching is introduced through systematic professional development and classroom observations and coaching. And I'll be spending three months later this year in Indianapolis, funded by a Fulbright Visiting Scholar Award to find out some more about it. And I'm I'm actually already piloting the approach with one school, which has 98% EAL learners in the south of England. And we're we're on track to scale up to three neighbouring schools next year. So I really like doing very practitioner-focused research where we work together in order to shape research that directly starts with and informs the practice in the school and therefore enhances pupil outcomes. I think some of the things that I've been surprised by researching this area is how little teacher training is devoted to, you know, the needs of EAL learners but also that there's a lot of assumptions made about EAL children that are completely incorrect. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, there's certainly an issue with lack of EAL training, and that's quite historical, actually. That's partly to do with the fact that EAL is not explicitly mentioned in the national curriculum and therefore isn't high up in people's kind of sense of priorities. In in, in a way, it's not there in terms of what schools are feeling pressurised to respond to. There's been a lot of the term of the use disadvantage in recent years that has kind of homogenized everything, which isn't helpful for EAL. So there is limited training around, there's limited funding around, there are limited numbers of local authorities that have teams that target this specially. So that's kind of one of the issues. There is an ongoing narrative around there not being very much going on in teacher training programs as well. And as the person that delivers the EAL teacher training in my institution, I'd have to say, oh, well, some of us do try harder than others. But it is the case that, again, it isn't given the profile that it probably needs. There, there are quite a lot of assumptions made. It was just something I read in, in one of the papers about teachers' expectations of EAL mm. learners, that actually sometimes teacher expectations can depress pupil potential. And I was just interested, as someone who is engaged with initial teacher training, if you sort of have to work hard to dispel myths or tackle some of those assumptions at that point. I think I'd like to start on a slightly more positive note in response to that and say that the vast majority of teachers, whether they're trainees or in-service teachers, worry about their EAL learners and want to do better for them. And I just think it's really important to start with that one. It is also the case that perhaps those of us who are monolingual English speakers who speak the language that is most used internationally 
are maybe less sensitive to what it is to be an EAL learner and therefore expectations get a little bit, you know, mixed up with all that. It's possibly the case, I can't say I've found specific evidence of it myself, that some teachers associate some children with particular languages as potentially higher achievers than others. And that's certainly something that we we look at explicitly in our training at, at Reading. In fact, I'm saying exactly that to PGCE students this coming Wednesday afternoon this week. It's, 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 it's about raising awareness of the unconscious bias you may have towards children of particular language communities or whether those were positive or negative. And we're going into ethnicity as well there. And that's an interesting thing because there's what do I do to support language development? And then there's that bigger question of, you know, how do I support children's sense of well-being about who they are? How do I ensure that my school positively identifies the range of children's identities that we have here? So at the point of transition, which is obviously a very important point on the school journey, it's really important, isn't it, that all families are welcomed and understood and that the school works hard to learn as much as possible about the children and parents. What do you think are the kind of the optimal things that you'd love to see at that point of transition in terms of EAL learners and their parents? What can schools do that would really make a difference and really make families feel very, very welcome? Oh, there's lots I can say in this, and and I'll try and keep it, keep it brief. It's 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 one of the most interesting questions, really. Now, number one is is that schools, any any of us, and I include myself in that because you can't self reflect enough here. Schools need to recognise that EAL learners are not homogenous; they are very heterogeneous, super diverse, and not a single label. So, for this reason, it's very important that schools have really detailed profiling systems for when they admit their pupils with EAL particularly if this is at the other than the normal age of school entry, as it often is for EAL learners. I'm saying this because if profiling is detailed, then this of itself will demand the kind of conversation with families that will ensure the school knows as much detail as is needed and will ensure a kind of a firm footing for that two-way relationship that we need with parents is set up as soon as possible. And the sort of information that schools need is what are the family's home languages and why are they used? You know, for example, if our children are Muslim, they might be using Arabic for faith-based purposes and so on. There are different reasons why different families use different languages in different contexts. How long have the family lived in the UK? Very importantly, what were the circumstances of their arrival? Because this varies hugely. You know, if I'm talking to a Polish family who came here positively, one might say, as part of EU migration after 2004, their experience is very, very different from that of a, of a family who are refugees from a, from a conflict zone. So that, that's a massive difference just for one, as it were. You want to be asking questions about did the children have schooling in their home country or schooling in English? Or was schooling interrupted, as it well may be, if they were refugees or asylum seekers? Profiling needs to ask our children literate in their home language. We shouldn't assume that this is the case, nor should we assume that parents are literate in the home language either. So finding out those details. What faith does the family practice? Again, that reason I said that we use languages for different reasons and so on. And just in terms of being interested enough in who this children and child and their family are. I've seen some great practice in home profiling systems carried out by Hampshire's Ethnic Minority Achievement Service. And I would encourage any schools looking to design their own systems to look at those of local authority teams where they might have them. So it sounds like it's about 
really caring about the child and the family's journey to get to that school and also thinking about their well-being. So there's a sort of an academic assessment, if you like, but also there's an assessment when it comes to well-being. Absolutely. Pastoral, really important. It's part of the same package. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you've talked about the importance of specifically assessing English proficiency rather than using standard assessment tools. In your experience, do schools routinely use the right scale to measure those kinds of things? Okay, so this is a tricky one. So there are two things to say here. One is that assessing English proficiency is a really, really important starting point, and that's borne out by research, particularly from Professor Steve Strand, who's at Oxford University, because it's a starting point for where pupils are at in terms of their language and their literacy development rather than where they are at in terms of the national curriculum. So proficiency is a much more meaningful starting point for planning and for target setting for these children. Now, several years back, there was an attempt by government to make assessment using a proficiency scale, a very good one, perfectly serviceable one, came out from the Department for Education, and it was meant to be statutory. Sadly, it was removed because there was some conflation of this proficiency scale with migration data collection. This was a shame. However, there are some some schools, I can't comment for you on the percentage of in response to your questions about do schools routinely use this. There are some schools that do routinely use DFE proficiency scales, particularly where they've got large numbers of VAL learners or where they're in a county or local authority where the, the local team asks that of them, as it were. And this might be, for example, uh, Solihull has an absolutely excellent proficiency scale. There's another one called NASIA, that's Northern Association for Assessment of VAL. Both those schemes are great. And other schools use the really excellent assessment resources that are available from the Bell Foundation. Now, the Bell Foundation EAL assessment program basically picked up what were the Department for Education proficiency scales and enriched them and developed all sorts of resources around them. So they're a great tool to use if you do want to be a school that uses the DFE proficiency scale as a way of measuring your EAL learners. And I would most certainly encourage you to be doing that. Well, that was very clear. Thank you. And I know the Bell Foundation has fantastic resources Absolutely and research fantastic. reports yeah. on its site mm. as well. So mm. thank you for mentioning that. Now, here's a big question. Could you outline some of the features of effective teaching and best practice for teaching children with EAL? So I suppose we're, we're really going to start with the pedagogy, aren't we? You know, what are the main things that you'd like to get across in this area? Okay, so that is a big question. I'll try not to be too long. So I've thought about this. And again, whether I'm working with pre-service or in-service teachers, I draw their attention to this idea of the linguistically responsive teacher. And that's a kind of model of the, the great EAL practitioner that's been developed by Tamara Lucas and her colleagues in the US. There's a lot of great EAL research around from, from the US. And it really chimes with my vision of the great teacher for EAL that I've observed through my own research. So this effective teacher of EAL, this linguistically responsive teacher, has two identities, really, I guess, or two parts to their one identity. One, they are an advocate for EAL learners, so that person that's really interested in every aspect of the learner including proficiency and home life and all the rest of it that we just talked about. And the other part of that identity is that they're a research-informed practitioner who teaches according to what is known about second language learning and teaching. And it's that 
bit of subject knowledge it's that that other bit that we need to be seeing so we need to know that what this linguistic responsive teacher does is they start off by making sure that the classroom environment they create is one that is safe and welcoming where it's okay to make mistakes arguably you'd say obviously that's great practice for all pupils but we layer into this some other layers of subject knowledge, one of which is you must know a lot about your individual pupils' backgrounds, particularly their language backgrounds. You need to make sure that the activities are founded on a talk-based or a dialogic or an oracy approach to learning, which takes account of and starts with the pupils' proficiency in English. You also need to take account of the fact, the really important fact, that pupils are learning both conversational English and academic English. And we know that conversational English, we might say playground English, takes around, this is very roughly, two years to learn. Whereas being fully competent and proficient and conversant in the English of the curriculum, you know, understanding the words around science or geography or mathematics, that takes more like five to seven years. So they're almost like two different types of English. And it's that curriculum English that teachers need to be really focused in on if they're going to really support their children in getting to full proficiency in English. They need to also look at including opportunities for collaboration, collaborative learning, and opportunities to use first language. So are there times when children could be thinking in their home language or paired up with the same language body in order to access the concepts before they've got to access all the language, as it were? Another element of great EAL teaching is take account of your groupings. Sometimes you might be pairing in same language pairings, like I've just said, but other times you might be consciously pairing children up with great models of English language speaking. So good native speakers of English who act as a great role model for them. And I think that sometimes goes against the grain from practice in some classrooms. Understandably, in some schools, we see EAL is conflated with special educational needs to send and that means you may get EAL learners sitting on tables with children who have SEN. Those children are not necessarily the best language role models for those EAL learners. So try and think instead about language learning rather than this being a special need. I know that's hard because often schools are doing it that way because that's how the resources run. And so that's understandable. Years ago, I remember seeing a little boy helping another little boy. So this mm. the boy that I know, his mother is Polish. They speak Polish at home. And when the new boy arrived without any English at all, my friend's son was paired up with him in the playground. And <laughs> so they were able to speak Polish. And this mm. other child was helping the new entrant to navigate the school and telling him the rules and how to do this and play that. It was very moving to see how mm. gorgeously altruistic children are, you know, and so welcoming to other children. And he was a great role model, you know, to yeah. that child. But I remember him saying he doesn't say very much. It took him a couple of weeks to open up and say anything. And you can imagine how difficult it can be in, in a new environment like that with a new friend who's showing you around to have the confidence to try English out for the first time. Absolutely. And some children are silent for as long as six months in this first period of acquiring language. They have to be given time to listen. And teachers find that hard, entirely understandably. I mean, I was one myself and I remember finding it hard. You know, when children are silent, we think they're not learning, but of course they're listening and taking in things and we can give them opportunities to respond non-verbally. But body support from same language speakers is great. We have, of course, to be very careful that we're still looking after the needs of that child who is more proficient and maybe doing really, really well and that we're not forgetting them and that they're not being used as a kind of interpreter all the time. But there are some really good buddy schemes like the one you just described, actually, which really help with a kind of induction of new learners. 
in another school setting, I saw teachers using a sort of a, a Skype. So they had a translator on Skype to help with conversations with parents and they were using Google Translate. What is your general view about tech being used in that way? I think on the whole, that's really a, a useful tool. I mean, I think some people have thought that Google Translate wasn't great in recent years, but actually I think it has improved. And I know this through conversation with local authority personnel that I work with who advise it. So I think Google Translate can work well. I think concrete resources, adding pictures to gestures and so on, so that we're not just talking, albeit with gestures, so pictures, other forms of kind of verbal cues are, are really useful as well. Simplifying English is really useful. Perhaps for older pupils, teachers might want to draw on something like simple English Wikipedia, which has less complex text for reading. I think also in terms of teachers trying to communicate with children who are new to English, that as I've already said, using first language where possible is also useful because being proficient in home language is actually more likely to be able to have a strong acquisition of a new language as well. I mentioned that to my husband a minute ago. He doesn't know anything about this stuff. And he said, wow, you know, that is completely counterintuitive. And I said, it's fascinating, isn't it? Mm, It is. And it's probably a really important thing. I mean, you know, in terms of those kind of number one things that you'd want teachers to understand in terms of subject knowledge, one would be the huge importance of maintaining native language. And the second one would be that difference between, you know, that conversational and academic English as well. If they've got those in their toolkit, they'll be becoming more language focused in their thinking. That's what we want. And the other thing is, I think it's it would really relieve a lot of pressure on parents because when I've spoken to parents who are concerned that they don't have strong English skills, they feel like they need to be speaking English at home more mm. than, and they sort of even maybe resist using the home language as much when their child enters the educational system. But that's not what the research suggests they should do, is it? It's not the case. And I also belong to, or I'm a co-director of a group called Bilingualism Matters at Reading. And we have advice for parents on our pages there. We have kind of a flyer and a couple of blogs and and videos that that support parents. And our kind of key message is it's much better to use the native language in the home for for a range of reasons. One is the children are going to be able to, to preserve it if you do that. Another one, obviously, is this fact that it's really important proficiency in in native language is by far the best gift you can give your children as that kind of blueprint that foundation to being able to learn other languages and one that's kind of slightly more difficult to talk about but I have talked about this with bilingual mothers myself recently actually is that if you as a parent are not so proficient in English yourself then the model of English you're providing for your children is not a great one so it's better for your children to be hearing your great home language use and learning for that than kind of not learning either English or the home language proficiently because they're not being presented with either, if you, if you see what I mean. I think that makes some sense. So it's a lot better for them to understand the complexity of language where the parent is confident to convey that information. Yes. yes. I think that's really encouraging. I think as well, another piece of good practice I thought was good practice, I'd love your opinion on, was in a primary school that I was in, the the poetry competition, children were encouraged to do their oral poetry performances in their home languages. And it was gorgeous, you know, for children to appreciate what other children are capable of and to hear other languages. You know, there's so many soft things that can happen in the school environment that can really create that sense of pride in being multilingual. 
Absolutely. And and that's a lovely example you've called on there, really. And again, whilst a lot of my work is very focused on the technicalities, if you like, of what can help teachers make their lessons great for EAL, so important is that other, as we've already said several times, that kind of pastoral way of being the advocate for languages, identifying opportunities for celebrating language. And also, I love the idea that, that what you said in your example there was that the children were doing oral language poetry as well we're not looking we're not obsessing with the written word you know the beauty of of just reciting in your own language and listening to the language of itself that's a lovely example of of raising the game if you like of celebration of multilingualism now a big word in the research but not that familiar to most people is the concept of translanguaging which Mm. i think means pupils are encouraged and supported to use all of their language fluidly rather than sticking to english only at school we've Mm. we've mentioned that a little bit but do you think there's sort of too much of a reliance a demand to speak english all the time during the school day or could schools generally make more use of the skills and attributes that multilingual learners bring I think it's definitely the case that I wish in every school I might see, you know, these linguistically responsive teachers that kind of allow language to be used fluidly in the way you describe. And that's that's really what we mean by translanguaging, this kind of moving between our language resources in order to help make sense of the lesson. And not least because it kind of widens horizons and possibilities for 21st century employment when allowed to flourish. I think the thing that's hard for schools is, as I said right at the beginning, is that they're being tested by this very high stakes testing system, which is in English. So, of course, the poor things get very focused on the use of English inevitably in in their classrooms. What's good, though, is that A, we're beginning to see some good use of translanguaging going on in some schools. But also that there are recent initiatives such as Voice 21. There's also an all-party parliamentary group on oracy and so on. So there are initiatives coming out of it at the moment that are more talk-based. And I think that those initiatives of themselves will help schools to focus on language use and talk and hopefully multilingualism as part of that. But maybe another starting point for schools is to, coming back to that fear of needing to use English because we're tested in that way, maybe another starting point is for schools to be able to engage with the benefits of bilingualism. You know, it's seen as a huge benefit, not just in terms of longer term kind of employability and things like that, but in terms of children's agility to move between languages, it means they have greater awareness of languages and how languages work. There's other research that says that bilingualism gives children a facility with things like problem solving and creativity, as well as obviously being an absolutely fundamental part of identities. So if schools can think in those positive ways first, they might then find that they're better able to accommodate a sort of a translanguaging classroom. Now, something that I'm really interested in is parental engagement and homeschool partnerships. And we all know that they can play a major role in children's outcomes. But we also know that research has shown parents with limited language proficiency in English can lack understanding about important aspects of school life and be underrepresented in school structures or decision making. What can we do to best support parents of EAL students to ensure they are not just involved, but truly engaged in their Mm. children's learning as much as possible? Yeah, this is a hard one. And it's been particularly hard for schools and for families in lockdown, I think. So we're kind of reflecting on it at a a particularly interesting point in time. I mean, I touched in your earlier question about how schools might welcome parents by talking about these very detailed induction systems and schools really knowing their families. And I think that's still the starting point, I'd say, to answer this question for you. 
The next plank of success, from again, from schools I've worked with is about community engagement. So in, in this school with 98% EAL learners I'm currently with, they, they work really hard at developing relationships with influential or important and therefore potentially helpful and supportive community members who of themselves can advocate for those parents who perhaps don't have enough English to feel confident to go into school and therefore become underrepresented and then get isolated, as it were. Um, and I think schools like this one also run things like parental classes where speakers of community languages can explain things about the school and give parents the opportunity to ask questions so they're more kind of empowered to know what's going on. I think good schools also take time to find out about the parents and what sorts of things they bring positively into school. So it's, it's about this positive mindset. It's about not starting from the mindset they don't have English. It's about starting from the mindset what riches do this family bring, as it were? And that way we can have their home lives being showcased in schools. And by that, I mean going a little bit beyond the kind of food and festivals focus that we often see. There's nothing wrong with those. But seeing a parent from a local community maybe come in to tell stories in home languages or, or talk about their artwork, perhaps, or dancing or something culturally specific that's also relatable is perhaps a more powerful inroad into forging a genuine links through kind of the everyday as it were. I'm dying to ask, sometimes I've seen children having to translate for their parents, which mm. to me, it's always struck me as quite uncomfortable for the child and quite stressful, but I do understand why it takes place. And I just think, oh, is that, you know, something, you know, I've seen children very, very tired at school events. Maybe they're nine or 10 years old, but they've been taken to the secondary school to translate the parents' evening dialogue. And I think, wow, that's hard, really hard. I mean, those children are enormously resilient and, and mentally agile to take part in that kind of activity. What would you say about the benefits or not of that approach? That's a really interesting thing to have raised. And there's a lot of quite current research around the the challenge for children of being used as language brokers, which is effectively what they're doing. And the fact that in asking children to interpret or broker for their, or translate indeed, for their families, is asking them often to take on an adult role when they're only children. Having said that, sometimes that's the only resource a school has or a family has. But, but where possible, I would ask schools to think about, is there another adult that can take on this role? Is there another parent that can perhaps interpret for this parent? Because it's very complex, especially say the teacher might want to be saying things to the parents that are about the child that they kind of want to say in confidence or vice versa or... Another issue we might get is children interpreting things for their parents that are not actually what the teacher has said. So there are all sorts of pitfalls around this approach, quite apart from the fact that, as we've said, this is an exhausting and perhaps inappropriate role for children often to undertake. So it's it just a matter of weighing up, when is this useful? When do I need to use this as a tool in terms of the school's toolkit? And when do I need to think about, actually, we need an adult here? Now, another area I'm very interested in is sort of accessibility of school communications and the language that teachers use. And, you know, I remember seeing a few years ago, a school had sent home some chemistry homework to a family where the parents did not speak any English. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, the parent had no idea how to help their child with the homework because they didn't, you know, nothing was was sort of made clear. It wasn't communicated what how the parent could help 
the child with the chemistry test and nothing had obviously been translated or anything like that. And it, it just made me look into and think about, you know, if there were any systems that could translate some of those concepts and make them, you know, into different languages or make them more accessible, because it just seems terribly unfair, doesn't it? It does, but schools say in some of our inner cities have as many as 70 languages, so they would be very hard-pressed to be sending home homework in all those languages. There's no easy answer to this, but it is the problem. I mean, clearly sending home parents communications that are in community languages where possible is the ideal place to be. And it might be that schools enrol bilingual assistants in helping with that, for example. Another thing to bear in mind, though, is that there are two things going on here. One is the fact that they might not be able to read English. It's also the case that some of the schools I work with found out, in fact, during lockdown, found that they hadn't realised that their parents are not literate in their home languages. So sending home something written in a home language is not useful if the parents actually don't read that home language. So in those cases, you're looking at needing to have kind of systems of, say, spoken language help. So I've seen in some schools where podcasts, for example, are created by bilingual assistants that use community languages that put together, say, a five-minute support podcast that parents can download onto smartphones and watch. So it's making the communication oral where possibly practical, which is really difficult <laughs> to do, I know. That podcast idea is absolutely brilliant. I love it. Yeah. The other thing is I came across Learning Ladders. They translate the curriculum into 48 different languages. They are great. Something that I've come across. This is a really interesting area. You know, what practical advice can you give parents raising bilingual children in terms of supporting their academic achievement? Because I've met so many parents who worry, 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 worry yeah. about which language to speak at home and is their child going to be behind? And it just seems extraordinary. Isn't it? It's such an asset to speak multiple languages, yet parents worry a lot about whether they're doing it right. Mm-hmm. I think parents worry about lots of things, actually, and we're just in the middle of analysing data from a project which we called Languages in Lockdown, which I've done with colleagues at Reading and, and several other places as well. And it was interesting to see that parents have a range of worries from, oh dear, they won't know English if I don't do English with them at home, too. Oh dear, they won't know their community languages and they won't know their identity if I don't use my home language. So you've got, you've got a whole continuum of anxieties going on there. And chopped into that is you've got perhaps one parent's English and the other one's, you know, Lithuanian or both parents are German or or whatever. So it's a huge variation in how parents express that. So our advice, certainly from Bilingualism Matters at Reading, is to, as I've said earlier, to continue speaking in home languages rather than English because it's this strong foundation that I've already mentioned. You know, children will get English through school, through social media, through television, And so maintenance of home language is that kind of best gift. And I think, you know, make decisions for yourself as a family if you've got two different parents of two different languages about whether you want them both used or whatever and and kind of go with what feels right for you and your family. Same as do read to them in home languages, do read stories in your home language so that they're hearing new words that maybe you don't use in everyday conversation and deepening their engagement with the language and with the stories that belong to that identity. Another thing I'm dying to ask, which I've come across quite a lot, is parents saying that the child just suddenly refuses to speak the home language mm. um, or, you know, they're quite resistant to one parent speaking to them in one like you know, they and I think it might just be a parenting issue, but but that's certainly something I remember from parents' accounts. Yeah, 
that's very common and again something that worries parents terribly and again I have no kind of magic bullet here not least because I'm not a multilingual parent myself but I have spoken with many multilingual parents and they, they each find their own kind of course through it really and I just think I guess if I were were confronted with the, my child speaking English when I'm really desperate for them to be using my language my advice would be to try not to make a big thing about the teaching in English because that's going to build up tensions between you and your child over use of language. You must only use home language in the home and you must only use English at school, as it were. You don't want to be building up those tensions in your relationship. And the other thing is, is that children may not be using your language, but they sure as as shooting understand your language. So if you're addressing them in your home language and they're responding to you in English, they have understood you. They're just choosing to respond in English. If you think about it, what they've done is linguistically really agile. So perhaps try and think a little bit more positively about that. I just, I just like to share at this point, actually, from my own research, specifically amongst the Polish community. I spoke with quite a lot of Polish parents and their children. And the children were expressing a sense of anxiety almost really about wanting to please their teachers and wanting to please their parents. So one little girl said, basically, I'm English when I'm in school. And as soon as I go outside the school gate, I'm Polish. And this was a challenge for her because she didn't feel there was permission, I guess, if you like, to use either language in either setting. And we as teachers and and as parents perhaps need to be relaxing a bit and allowing our children to be fluid with their languages and accepting that they are able to do that. And also children don't really enjoy ambiguity. They they like that. What am I allowed to do when and where? And, you know, I think if parents sort of understand, make a sort of a decision, you know, it's good to hear that they should focus on the home language, read stories in the home language. I mean, that's very freeing for so many parents. Naomi, you've mentioned fantastic resources throughout this, including we, we've noted the bilingualism matters at Reading, hopefully, which we can signpost people to lovely. and lovely other mentions. But are there any other specific things that you'd mentioned either for bilingual children themselves or parents or teachers? What would be your go to websites that you think everyone should know about? Well, it would definitely be the Bell Foundation. I could give, give them a plug again. Not just for their assessment materials, but for teachers, they have this unbelievably good page, literally called the Great Ideas page. And in it, it has a large number of research-informed, great dialogic talk ridge activities, which some of the teachers I've taught or or spoken to have said, oh my goodness, this page has changed my life because they find it so good. The other thing about the Bell Foundation is it also has pages for parents. So there are parental advice in there and guidance, which is really, really super useful. Another one in terms of resources is a company called Mantra Lingua, which I don't mind giving a plug to. I don't usually advertise commercial goods, but they are long established and very well regarded in in my field. Mantra Lingua produces a lot of bilingual texts and uh, other resources that schools and parents might want to be using. So those are great. For professional support for teachers, do think about joining NALDIC, that's the National Association for Language Development in the Curriculum, of which I'm on the executive and I'm the events chair. And NALDIC is a very teacher-facing organisation, although a lot of us that run it are academics. We do thankfully have brains outside the, the ivory tower. And it has a termly journal called the EAL Journal. We have an annual conference. We have regional interest groups and so on. And people might well find that useful as well. Well, that is extremely useful. Yeah, I'm aware <laughs> of that because that journal is absolutely jam-packed with fascinating articles. 
and very teacher friendly I hope yeah, yeah. as well not, every not staff academic. room you know <laughs> should, should have one and I think just learning about that organization is really fantastic to share that with teachers who may be not aware of it yet Okay, well, I can't believe 46 minutes have passed and we've packed in so much. Thank you so much for your time. And um, thank you so much for sharing your pearls of wisdom with us. All the very best. Thank you, Naomi. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.